Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Petra Buskins. Dr. Petra Buskins is an honorary fellow in the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne, a psychotherapist in private practice, and a freelance opinion writer. Her books include Modern Motherhood and Women's Dual Identities, Mothering and Psychoanalysis, Australian Mothering, Nancy Chodoro and the Reproduction of Mothering, 40 Years On, and her forthcoming book, Heterodox Feminism. Her opinion pieces have appeared in New Matilda, The Conversation, The Huffington Post, Arrow Magazine, and others. Last year, Buskins wrote an op-ed on J.K. Rowling, which became the focus of controversy. I welcome Petra Buskins to Savage Minds. People on the left are pushing lockdown, zero class analysis, zero historical material. They call themselves Marxists, and they're like, lockdown, baby, lockdown. And they want their waitros delivered to them. They want Deliveroo, but they don't care about the people living in small flats who are doing their Deliverooing. Anyways, I'm very angry with the left all around, you know, and I'm a leftist, by the way, but... I'm not a hypocritical leftist, let's just put it that way. And in fact, if anything, since the gender debates erupted and this ridiculous lockdown culture, I have appreciated voices on the right a lot. And I can't even believe I'm saying it, but I can, because I'm finding that right-wing people are more concerned about the poor than these woke people, you know? It's discombobulating. I say um, the left left me, I didn't leave the left, yeah? So I I sit politically probably right on about where you sit. I'm sure we'll find differences, but historically I'm on the left and I feel betrayed by the left. I mean, what is this? But, I mean, we're relatively middle class. I say relatively because, you know, that's a category that's bleeding out and most of us are doing, you know, a little bit of bit work and a little bit of gig economy and a little bit of subscription a little bit of you know um, right. nonetheless um uh, yeah people in the working class are suffering badly people with small businesses are suffering badly and their class interests aren't represented at all i mean here the police opened fire with rubber bullets on protesters i mean extraordinary violence now clearly the protest happened under lockdown so it violated the law but when the black lives matter protest happened that wasn't happening yeah so there wasn't a kind of uh, a civil response. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm disturbed by it too, the radical lack of critique. You'll find it at the margins. I find Darren Allen has probably one of the most uh, sophisticated and comprehensive critiques from the left. But otherwise, yeah, it's, it's coming from the libertarians and the centre-right who, who care about family and who care about community. And then the libertarians are just like, get the fuck off my back. And I'm finding myself living... <laughs> <laughs> more of a kind of left libertarian position and I wasn't there historically because I'd always kind of supported redistribution and and welfare and and you know basic income and so on especially for women who who can't do uh, wage labor in the same way but now I go <laughs> just to use a bit of a lord of, of the rings analogy you know the when the orcs are coming well hang on the dwarves are your friends if you're the elves even though historically you might be enemies I go, the, the radical incursion on civil liberties is so bad that uh, political alliances have to be made. I and mean, that's what politics is. That's the other thing, the purism that you can't talk to someone from, you know, the centre-right, I find absurd. But I probably once had that view, you know, that's been radically challenged in me. My inner woke of my 20-somethings has been atoned for. <laughs> 
Last year, you wrote the op-ed on J.K. Rowling, which went viral, and this led to a kickback within the Australian Sociological Association, where a noisy minority of members denounced you as a transphobe. I've been there, done that. And the organization <laughs> itself retracted its public congratulations of your article having been read the most of all of the area publications last year. So this is so familiar to me. And then you wrote an open letter to the Australian Sociological Association while your colleague created a petition demanding that they apologize to you. Again, they didn't do this. Again, not surprising. So I read your arrow piece when it was published. I recall this because every time someone writes on trans, I actually am surprised I didn't write you. A lot of times I write the author and I say, have you been receiving a lot of threats? You know, you have my support because this is tends to be par for the course. And I read your arrow piece when it was published and compared to my views on this very topic, yours is very polite, far more tame. What <laughs> did the trans activists take aim at specifically within your piece, do you think? Mm. Well, I mean, what is interesting, and my friend Katie, who's in law at Melbourne Uni, said um, about the kickback, I mean, because if you read my article, I sort of adopt almost the Archimedean standpoint, which I think is, is mythical, but this kind of stepping back and analysing what's happening to the culture and the hijacking that's happening and the polarisation and the hysteria. And that, you know, I think one of the core points was we no longer have this capacity to disagree. Civil disagreement is like a pre-digital experience. Now it goes straight into sort of conflict of the most, you know, reptilian kind, limbic brain and stuff. And um, Katie said, while still declaring my hand that I was a quote-unquote gender critical feminist, I guess, or that I support um, the what I consider to be a very straightforward thing, and that is that we have, you know, we're a sexually dimorphic species and that biological sex exists and that, that that's not the same as gender and neither is it produced by gender or any of the other kind of postmodern notions. But what Katie observed, and I thought it was an accurate and insightful observation, is the very thing that I document then happened to me, right? So I'm saying, you know, we've lost the capacity for civil disagreement and people are devolving into name calling and, and it's most acute around this very issue. Uh, and then that very thing happened. It didn't happen straight away, I should say. There was a, there was a time delay because, of course, the article wasn't announced as... Um, the most popular until they did their lead up. And it was actually announced on New Year's Eve. Um, and so I wrote it in June and it went viral. And I had a lot of engagement at the time, but mostly that was affirming. I was expecting the backlash, but it didn't really come. There was a little bit of that, not a lot though, and I ignored it. Um, and I do remember seeing you on Twitter. See, I'm not on Twitter now. I mean, I haven't deactivated my account, but I do remember engaging with you a little bit over the years, actually, when you contacted me. I thought, I know that name. And yeah, so, um, so then when it was announced, I mentioned this to, so TARSA have a, a, a general call where uh, members, and I, I'm a member of the Australian Association, just put forward their publications, their blogs. You know, if you appear on a podcast like this, uh, I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't notify them anymore, but I was still doing so then. And I notified the, um, the secretary of the organisation. That's the woman who collects this. Now, what I think is really interesting about this is that she's not an academic. And she said, oh, this is great. Gee, what an interesting piece. You know, yep, I'll put it up. Fantastic. Congratulations. 
completely unaware. And I mean, I, I feel a little bit guilty about that, uh, but because I didn't inform her, I wasn't thinking about it. And that time of year, you know, you're not really thinking about it in New Year's Eve, are you? I just said, this is what um, happened. And I think I told her about two weeks later um, because of that period, you know, everyone was on holidays. But she then just republished this, not understanding that this was a landmine. And I think that's interesting because I also notified um, the CEO of the board that I'm on um, <clears throat> and notified him. And he was also shocked. So uh, while most people are up to speed now, even a year ago, there were a lot of, let's say, normies, I think that's a bit of a condescending term, but I'll, I'll use it for now, um, who were fairly oblivious that this was such a landmine. And in that oblivion, they often adopted a default common sense mode, yeah? So she just posted it, not knowing at all that it would get her in serious trouble. I was in school holiday mode. My kids and I, with a close friend and her kids, were at, um, at a local spring where I live. There's a lot of mineral springs. Just having a great day in the, in the summer and the kids are swimming and I get home and my colleague who did the petition sent me this really sort of um, genial text saying, um, something's really blown up on Twitter. You might want to have a look. <laughs> and it had, wasn't huge. It wasn't a massive blow up because, of course, I don't have the profile for that. But just it's that noisy minority, as you aptly described them, uh, saying this should not be posted, this should not be celebrated. I can't remember the exact words. I did screenshot the stuff. Um, you know, it's transphobic and, and, and blah, blah. And that's when I wrote my repost. I, I wrote a reply because I just thought, you know, it, it's outrageous. It's outrageous that any kind of engagement with this issue, it doesn't matter how civil or polite you are, which if you recall from the piece, I said that. The only thing wrong with JK Rowling's blog post was that she assumed a rational interlocutor. We're not dealing with a rational interlocutor or, or series of interlocutors, and it doesn't seem to matter who they are. What I'm saying is they can be full professors and they're still caught in this kind of religious mode with it because it's assumed to be the next big civil rights movement and we're assumed to be like white supremacists or grand old patriarchs stopping this movement of progress. So there's no acknowledgement of, as, as uh, Holly Lawford-Smith, another colleague at Melbourne Uni says, of a conflict of interest. The conflict of interest is defined a priori as, um, as bigoted. It, to name that or to claim that is to, and so my increasingly, I don't think, which ties into the sort of uh, balkanization of truth point, I increasingly think these are um, completely incompatible positions. I would say I've moved from the place that I was in then when I was mapping that we can't have civil disagreement and that was perhaps an abstract argument and it's moved to being an emotional one, you know, where not emotional and embodied knowledge is, is what I mean by that, um, whereby I kind of thought, you know, we're missing this piece. We need to be able to have it. Now I'm like we should have it but it seems impossible now because uh, what's that funny aphorism uh, it's a 19th century aphorism where a legal scholar said two women, and it was women, in, he walked walks under a bridge and there's two women in, in different houses on opposing sides of the road having an argument. And he says they can't agree because they're starting from different premises with the double entendre being on premise, premise the house, premise the argument. And I, and I really like that because I think that's what's happening. In fact, I have a piece I'm writing starting with that vignette that we're just... Um, we're not starting from the same premises and they're mutually incompatible. I know that's a bit of a dark interpretation, but that's the one I've arrived at. 
Well, there is something very sinister about this movement. And here we go again. I'll have to start to say this is not all trans-identified people, but why do I even have to preface this at all? Because what your piece, even the title gets at, with the apology to J.K. Rowling, I was curious by your title initially, uh, you note that in fact, everyone was bending over backwards to apologize to the trans community, but not to her. And this is par for the course. Any woman says that a lesbian does not have a penis and who's getting slammed on social media? The woman saying something that is not only entirely coherent and scientifically valid, but these trans activists, a lot of them are white, middle, middle, upper class men. They are allowed to enact a 21st century misogyny that You'd have to poke me with a pin because I wonder if we're not back in the medieval era. There's so much about this movement that I find frightening from a historical perspective. At what point yeah. are women allowed to speak without having to say, but I'm not a transphobe. Let's even step further back. When I asked you my first question, I said, your piece was far more polite than mine because I've shifted a lot over the years. And I'm someone who has taught queer theory but I do not think that transgender identity is anything more than a cultural narrative. I think it can be fetishized on an individual level. I, I do think that the notion of transgenderism as something that was once upon a time in the 1950s codified by John Money. There was a huge interest in the mid 20th century, not only into sexuality, but we know from what was going on during the Weimar Republic and from certain sexology institutes that looking at effeminate men and trying to fix effeminate men seems to be the problem here. And who is left, as I, I said in a piece I wrote a few months ago, who is left to sort out men's sock drawers are the symbolic mothers. We are supposed to be doing the work of men. Where are the men being asked to accommodate men in wigs, men in dresses, effeminate men, men with feels into their spaces? Because this is turned into the way that Holly's been treated as well, but she's one of dozens. I think the numbers are actually going in the hundreds, to be honest, because I've been working on this for almost a decade. And there are well over a hundred people who are outspoken, who have been harassed, who've had the police knock on their door for saying something as innocuous as he, okay? Oh my God, this is insane. And here we are living in a world where ideology has replaced theology. And this is being enforced mm -hmm. by transnational corporations, all the managerial class, that have created mechanisms that include economic benefits, government kickbacks, government perks, etc. But there's a lot of money changing hands so that people can have div equality, diversity training. And you get a stamp on your website from that office that gave you that stamp and they get money for having given you the stamp and everyone runs around saying, I got the stamp. My pronouns are, I forgot to ask your pronouns, and I see that we are in the throes of some kind of social mental condition here where people are out 
performing their subjectivities, looking over their shoulder, making sure that they are being observed. I'm thinking of Freud's Fort Da. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think we are in the presence of a kind of collective madness. And I mean, we started this conversation talking about lockdowns and we can see how the illiberal left or the militant woke left are, are in a sense behind a number of these quite draconian social moves that are, you know, uh, encoded in law now and, and social policy. They're completely compatible with neoliberalism. This is the other thing. I mean, as you say, there's over 100 now. There's many, many more. If you, you know, I'm sure you've talked to Helen Pluckrose, but the organisation Counterweight is now taking, you know, is supporting people just out there on the coalface who don't have big profiles. We focus on the um, on the women scholars and activists and so on with big profiles but of course there's just numerous people just in the world who are stumbling on this you know and and finding themselves accused of bigotry and my sense is that as um, jobs pay less I mean the relationship between wages and being out by a home is is increasingly uh, it's a gulf you know and and as uh, as jobs that are in any sense have good rights and, you know, university educated people with arts degrees can go for become rarer and more competitive. And, you know, a friend of mine went for an unpaid internship to try to transition out of being a stay-at-home mum for 20 years. You know, the competition around an unpaid position now is extraordinary. I think this militant woke stuff has become another way of bullying in the workplace and buying for position. It's not only that it's completely compatible with neoliberalism in that there's no critique beyond identity so it's like there's no there's no critique of class but also of the global economic order or if it is I mean they're all playing the game yeah rocketing up the career ladder a lot of these people who claim to be victims which I said in my Tarza piece and the backstory there I mean I, I don't want to get out my violin but I went for a number of those jobs and you know I mean there's obvious cancellation but uh, as a colleague of mine and I've talked about a lot there's also the covert cancellation where if you don't have the right kind of feminism which which could tie me back to Pateman and, and my work. I mean, because I was writing about motherhood and about women, the category of woman, and that was already from the 90s becoming uh, academically taboo and passe and incorrigibly essentialist and so on. Uh, I wasn't shortlisted for those jobs anymore. And, uh, you know, I mean, maybe there was a better candidate, but some of those people who are bullies were the candidates. And you go, oh, that's interesting. So academia has actually, as, you know, the Heterodox Academy points out, but I think it's happened in Australia as well as in the States, has really diminished viewpoint diversity. But back to my point, these people proclaim to be victimised or to be speaking for victims, but they themselves are actually ensconced in cushy, well-paid jobs and, and they toe the party line. Like, you know, how many of us have had people say privately, I really agree with that, but I can't, I can't say it or I'll lose my job. So there's also that whole piece where even, even tenured academics won't say what they actually believe on this issue. And then they do this kind of um, mental gymnastics. I've seen this more recently, but they start out saying, this is appalling. Then they move to, I'd like to say it, but I can't. I'm glad you're saying it. Then they move to, oh, look, I've, I've actually, you know, really thought this through and uh, and I, I agree with this now. As if there were no, as if we were in a, some kind of social vacuum. They just independently came to that position. They were coerced into it. Yeah, you know I mean? yeah, yeah, I know exactly. Exactly what you're talking about. I have been disinvited of, from a friend's house for having this discussion. We had just mm. been invited. 20 minutes in the door starting to talk and we were asked to leave. 
I, I was shocked, you know, because I'm looking at my friend. It was a New Year's invite, in fact, and she had just met these friends I had talked about. I was like, let's go over and have New Year's drinks with them, central London. And we left, and I said, I'm so sorry. I didn't know this was going to happen, you know. It was insane. But people are, and these were two lesbians. They, the gay community has been sucked into this so fast. You have Diva magazine encouraging lesbians to have sex with men. You couldn't have written this. If, if you had told me Monty Python had written this, I would have believed you. That's how insane it is. I interviewed mm, a guy I agree, I agree. from the Netflix <laughs> protest when Netflix writers walked out uh, a couple weeks ago. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I yeah, interviewed yeah, yeah, I Fido. That. He had a sign that said, jokes are funny. And one activist, a Netflix <laughs> writer, tore it out of his hand, took the sign yeah, off I the stick. On a video, actually. Yeah, and then they accused <laughs> him of having a stick. I mean, this is, yes. it's insane. So we're watching a cultural hysteria unfolded before our eyes. And if you say anything to the contrary, you risk losing academic publishing. To those who are tenured, I have no pity for them. I think they're cowards. I think anyone who has tenure in the United States and does not open their mouths is a coward. And I've seen them. I've just read parts of an academic book last night. I was sent a link to read it, read it. I didn't read all of it, but I went through it quickly to see if the author mentioned transgender anything. It was exactly about this subject. Somehow the author avoided mentioning anything about the elephant in the room. It was all about what you know, Adolf Reed talks about this. He, he criticized the way that people went off on Rachel Dolezal, but somehow we're supposed to believe a former decathlon gold medalist is now a woman. And he went off about Rachel Dolezal bad, Bruce Jenner good. And he mentions, and he's been consistent on this, he's great, how the managerial class elite have created a vacuum within unions, organization, political organizations, such that the working class is now not represented. The elite, as you mentioned, they've got their museum jobs, they have their academic jobs, they have their book publishing jobs, and they keep it. I do think, like you mentioned earlier, I've, I've been really pushing on this because since the 90s, when I saw some of my students from NYU, they spent how much at NYU? It was almost 50,000 a year at that time. They left with either no debt because they came from wealth or great debt, and they were getting jobs as baristas. Because since the late 90s, the prospects for someone coming from a really good educational institution with a bachelor's were not great. Now, no, no. what is happening, in my view, is the left has been able to do anything about material wealth because they've never really, and I'm talking about the pseudo left in a way, they've never really addressed class. What they have addressed is the next best thing. We'll just take language and make it look like we're doing something. It's rearranging the chairs on the Titanic because that boat was sinking with the right and it's sinking with this nonsense, you know? Oh, I like that analogy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that, that turn to language. I mean, I, I don't think it was intentional that this was the outcome down the track, but it did. It, it obviated structural analysis and it eliminated. But it also, I mean, this is the interesting thing. And I, I wrote about this in another piece I published in Aereo that, that for feminists, the category of woman 
was always sort of at the centre of analysis. And it's not only that class was obviated, sex class was too. And so that puts us in a, in a complex position vis-a-vis -vis identity politics because the sex class woman is in some sense a political identity. So we can't simply reject identity politics, is my view. We are in strategic relationship with it because we're not only doing economic class analysis. So I think absolutely the left have betrayed the working class and no longer represent them. So what we have now is an institutionalised managerial left that it seems to me consists of uh, baby boomers who just sold out as careerists and a younger generation who don't weren't equipped with the tools to critique that system uh, for those who are in, or, or they just simply agree, they're in compliance with it. And then anyone else who disagrees is out, right? So there's no longer that viewpoint diversity in the system of power in any of those major organisations. We know that, the media, uh, academia, law, it's, it's across the board now. Um, it really has only kept going as a kind of flame within the population and then in, in right-wing movements and, and then niche left movements like gender-critical feminists or, um, you know, there's leftist thinkers, like I was saying, Darren Allen, or, you know, there's a few left that are, that are willing to critique identity politics. I think Matt Taibbi does a great job as a journalist uh, exposing some of this stuff in America. Um, but it's, you know, it's increasingly rare isn't it, to even have any kind of kickback. So that institutionalised managerial left has imposed it on us in the same way that they've imposed mandates. But what I find disturbing is that where there was a kind of commonsensical critique of that that came from uh, both a kind of grassroots left and from let's say, for what of a better term, ordinary people, as this gets imposed with sort of mandates and training and so on, it's, it's eliminating the opposition. And so, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, uh, you know, in feminist circles here, people would say, oh, look, they won't get away with it for much longer. You, you, you do box pop with anyone and they say, this is ridiculous. But that's shifting, is my view, because people need their jobs and people don't want to seem, don't want to be called bigots and they don't want to be ostracised. Uh, and it's the same that we see with the critique of lockdowns, you know. So actually it seems to me that the militant left are winning this and destroying cultural um, diversity and, and destroying the institutions that really matter, that, that uh, speak truth to power and that provide an enclave for intellectuals to, to challenge the status quo, to challenge. Look, I honestly can't tell the difference anymore, Julian, between an academic article and a, a bureaucratic research report. Can you? <laughs> I mean, they look the same. They, they don't, you know, you used to be able to tell the difference. I sometimes can't tell the difference between these articles that push identity politics and the onion. Sometimes it's so <laughs> far out. I know, but really. Yeah. And I, I tried to challenge this within academia. I sent a piece that I presented at the University of Brighton many years ago on was the piece that Adolf Reed and I, I jumped off from his piece. Anyways, and it was all around the Tuvel, if you recall the, the Tuvel. Uh, oh, yes, she's the philosopher published in uh, Hecate. Right. Oh, no, I mean, Hypatia. Right. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I was still uh, based in the UK at that point, and I sent it to the Gay and Lesbian Studies quarterly, and that's out of Duke University. Oh, it didn't even get anywhere. So what was your pet? You were covering that there was a hypocrisy and that she was looking at race and couldn't... Well, she, she compared the two cases. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so and you covered that in an article, did you? I had been covering it in journalism already, but I thought, let me 
go back to, because I had only been out of academia a, a couple of years at that point, I thought, let me just cover it as I write an academic piece. The issue I found quickly is that academic publications didn't want to be bothered. I have an ongoing war with SAGE publications, not to be confused with SAGE that decided on lockdown in the UK, but this is an international chain of overlords of various publications and they're shitty publications. I have written them. They do not abide by any kind of editorial standards. They defamed me, Rebecca Riley Cooper, a few others in a piece written by a dude in Houston who might, may or may not have a PhD in history, but he's not a scholar. And what he did is he recycled his blog entries as academic writing. They printed this. Long story short, for about eight months now, I've been asking them for an apology and a retraction. I said, I'm not a turf. First of all, if you're going to use terms that are slanderous, know what they mean. I'm not a radical feminist, nothing wrong with that. I am not a trans exclusionary radical feminist, what the heck? And the thing is, it goes back to your apology. I've been asking a similar question, I'll put it a different way. His name is Yaus, he has a book called Question Answer that came out in the 80s. And basically, Robert Yell says that just asking the question presupposes the answer. And I think we're stuck, women, we're stuck with being told that TWAW and what, do you want this trans woman to be murdered? And they're just peeing next to you and all this bullshit that we are given avalanches of, all because they're insisting on a reality that is A, not real, and B, if we dare contest it, we are the bigots. And it's a perfect rhetorical mechanism. It's one of those, well, when did you kill your husband? Not, did you kill your husband? We are not given any way out of that. And it reminds me of that many scenes in Crime and Punishment, or it's the trap of being a woman today that I think the economic reasons behind these movements, and it's not just trans identity, because we've seen over lockdown the various movements that try to highlight oppression, but the people who are oppressed because of, let's say, racism in the U.S. did not get any of that BLM money. That BLM money went to middle upper class black Americans. And no one's talking about where did those tens of millions go or even hundreds. It's like the development industry, isn't it? I mean, it's the same. All the funding that goes just gets sort of, yeah, trapped in that managerial class. Haitians are wondering where the 10 billion are that was supposed to help them after the 2010 earthquake, because the Clintons know where that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, my sense is, <clears throat> in many respects, it recapitulates gender. You know, I mean, a, a number of us are saying that. I'm not saying that's an original insight, but I'm saying that, you know, we can see this in some senses. My friend Janet says it, it's a men's rights movement because women have to move over. Like, Women have to move over. So while there's this pseudo-obliteration of women, well, it's not pseudo, it's real at the policy and law level, it is, it's all too real. But it's also pseudo in that it recapitulates gender, and I'm sort of thinking psychoanalytically here, because women are re-inscribed in their gender roles, which is we have to step aside for men. We have to step aside and say we're comfortable. You know, I have an adolescent daughter. Am I comfortable with a man in a dress who's still built like a man and, and preoperative in a toilet with her? No, I'm not. And I'm not prepared to play the emperor's new clothes and say that's a woman. Now, by definition, according to that logic, I'm a bigot. 
So, I mean, I don't, I think we're in a double bind. I think we can't participate in the terms as they've been set. You know, I think what you do when you put in a double bind, like those questions you're saying, is you step out. You step out of the framing of the question and you reframe the question. And, and, and I think what has to happen is we, we return to kind of first principles and we just reject the terms. But because, because I guess they've bought the, and, and I think it's a liberal fantasy at, at one level, that, that notion that we can invent ourselves. And I think that there's a, uh, it's interesting, and I've thought about this a lot and I want to write about this more, but who has time under lockdown with kids? Hey, you know, because um, <laughs> your women, we, the category of woman doesn't exist except we're still doing all the labour. So, yeah, I found my writing's been completely derailed. Uh, output is just about zero because I've been homeschooling two very different children um, in age and and sex. I was going to say gender, but you know that's changed in its meaning now. You know, that used to be, as Kathleen Stock says, that used to be a fairly innocuous descriptor that you know you could use as um, homologous with sex. But now, because of the politicisation of gender, I sort of use sex on principle. I think it recapitulates gender in in quite disturbing ways. And like all good propaganda, it pretends it's not. So, so we have to step aside as women and say we're, um, we, we tolerate this and, and this is okay and we can have our spaces. Um. But it also punishes women. It's recapitulating the worst of stereotypes. But if you dare say, as most women have said to these folks on social media, I don't have a gender, sorry, I don't identify with a gender. Well, you're cis, that's why. So the punishment, we've replaced the scarlet letter A with cis. And it's quite paradoxical because they can't shame us for sex anymore. I find it revealing that we are the ones left to defend our spaces while men are saying, shut up, bitch, you're a bigot. This is what is happening. And no one... Well, it's a new kind of sanctioned misogyny, isn't it, under the guise of being progressive. But I think at, at the same time, there are genuine divergences here because there, is a lot of, there are a lot of feminists and post-feminists on board with this. So I think what we're actually witnessing is the breakdown of a shared understanding of the culture uh, because we had that shared understanding, you know, when you and I were undergraduates. Uh, transsexuals existed and no one had any problem with them you know like there was no there wasn't but it but it wasn't um uh politicized in the way it is now and it wasn't weaponized more to the point what you know it, there wasn't an incompatibility I'm trying to say between uh transsexuals and feminism in quite the same way I know Janice Raymond and and uh Sheila Jeffries and a number of radical feminists were addressing this early on and I, and I think their analyses are accurate but what I'm saying is as we all know it wasn't weaponized to this degree it was seen as and understood as a niche issue and um while I found, you know, there were the drag shows near where I lived when I was an undergrad and I occasionally went with friends. And I had already a kind of radical feminist understanding. I wouldn't necessarily call myself a radical feminist now because I'm avoiding labels, but I certainly share uh, radical feminist analyses of certain topics like the sex industry or uh, pornography and prostitution and so on and, and this one. Um, but I remember feeling kind of we could have fun, we could have a drink, we could have a laugh about it, even if we said that's a caricatured kind of even deeply sexist representation of women and everyone could be together that's what I'm saying you could have an argument over a beer that wasn't uh so 
and possibly polarised and hostile as it is now. So I think we're really operating in a different landscape and that's about social media, which was another one of your questions that you had on the list. So it could be a good time to segue into that because I think that it's not the same. We often say, oh, this is like, you know, this is medieval or this is like we're going back in time. But I actually think this is sort of, this is politics 2.0 and the digital space changes everything. And it's part of why I've stepped out because I think Lainey is right to say, if you can, if you're not addicted or you don't need it, step out because we need a few people over here in the control group because the society is going mad. And I really took that to heart because I felt myself hijacked. I, you know, I've, been a scholar for 20, 30 years, and I can really feel the difference in the last 10 years. It's really hard just to think. I saw a piece in the monthly that's a, a magazine here in Australia, and um, they'd interviewed an artist, and she was saying, you know, the difficulty now is actually gaining space to concentrate. We're all just that our phones are pinging. You know, we've got multiple apps that are that are demanding our attention, and multiple social media, and multiple media, and then there's our personal groups, and and so I I feel like clawing back that space is actually a form of political activism unto itself, and stepping back from the culture and not being hijacked. So I see both sides, and I'm not doing both sides ism because I think women and men who are um, asserting the reality of biological sex are existing, <laughs> you know, that, that's, the, that's the reality science-based position. And, I, and I, so I'm not going relativist, but I am saying that both sides are limbically hijacked and both sides are engaging in these skirmishes and wars that are escalating the issue. We need to have a disagreement over a beer and because that's not possible anymore, I'm stepping back. Does that make sense? Oh, I absolutely agree with you. I have most of my Twitter feed is automated. I don't have the time to be on it. I'm both impressed and frightened by those who live on Twitter and frightened even people on our team. Yes, that's what I'm saying. People on our team are also kind of weaponizing this and engaging in the fight and therefore uh, exacerbating. Yes, I agree. Just saying TWAW, it has a power because it's only in language written, but in real world everyday life. People know that men are not women. And I, I do worry that we're losing sight of the other issues such as Yemen, Syria, really. I mean, there are serious human rights issues afoot. Look what is happening. Singapore is now going to charge citizens who, who don't get the vaccine for their medical care. I'm very worried about what's going on around the fomentation of very monolithic narratives on certain issues, even far flung from this. I agree. Well, there's an encroaching totalitarianism and everybody is focusing on the minutiae of identity politics while we've got encroaching totalitarianism. Like how many left writers have talked about the massive transfer of wealth that's happened under lockdown, mm -hmm. you know, or, or yeah. the destruction of, of society and culture? Yeah. Um, small you know, the small businesses. Yeah, trying. Yeah, small businesses. So, so we are <clears throat> we're fiddling while Rome burns. That's what's actually happening here. And you know, again, uh, quote unquote, I am not a conspiracy theorist, but you know, what what are the investments in us all fighting each other <laughs> while while this transfer of wealth goes on and while this you know digitized um, citizenship emerges, where you know you need to take a card to go places and you need to check in everywhere and you need to use QR codes. I mean, I'm sorry, but that's totalitarian. No one gives me my freedom. I'm born into that freedom in this society. And yet suddenly I'm not. Suddenly I have to now reapply and have a QR code. 
that that sanctions that freedom. Yeah, I call it the clown car sideshow. So while the circus, the lights go dim and the clowns come out because they're changing the trapeze artist nets or whatnot, so you can't see it. That's what's going on. Our eyes are on the clown car. And I think the trans discourse is the clown car. I have a lot of issues I've even changed on over the years because like you, when I was in university or graduate school, I lived in New York. I went to graduate school in New York City. Of course, there were drag queens everywhere. I knew Marsha P. Johnson. He wasn't a woman. He didn't claim to be a woman. Well, that's the other thing. They never did claim to be women. Right. They, it was clear that it was parody. Yeah. It was clear that it was drag. It was clear that it was, you know, this exaggerated um, pantomime. And that's why you could laugh at it even if you didn't like it, even if you were reading Sheila Jeffries in the back room. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. I wrote a piece for Quillette a few years ago on the transing of the dead because every woman who put on a pair of trousers is now a man. It's like Frida Kahlo had to wear men's clothes to go to the Universidad Nacional de Mexico. That was it. It wasn't because, well, maybe she did fancy wearing men's clothes sometimes. Why not? Why do we have to have a pathology for everything? And this is where I want to get to your specialty with psychotherapy. Are we seeing mass hysteria that's been built up around personality. And there's a bifurcation about this kind of, of diagnosis uh, with the DSM-5, what will the next one say, where people are fighting on the one hand, and this does vary from country to country. In the UK, many trans activists are fighting that this is completely delisted. It's just like homosexuality, and we're gonna have this gone from the DSM-5 because it's just normal. And then the Americans, of course, would never want that because they cannot get any medical treatment by their private insurance carriers, right? So uh, at what point are we being flung into this circus of people's performative of personality? Because I put on dungarees. I am wearing my yoga pants as I speak to you. Am I a man? Coco Chanel was one of the first women that modernized women's clothing by putting into the vocabulary of fashion at the time, trousers. She was pelted by stones. Women have had to fight the fight to be able to wear what the fuck we want. And if you or I were to walk outside in a tuxedo, people really wouldn't care. Mm. People do care when men wear anything that's not manly as it is culturally prescribed. But we also know that my uncles in Gujarat right now might be wearing a kurta and you have the bobo you have your similar styles or sarong and all of these that could be looked at as long dresses or tunics or skirts the kilt <laughs> yeah exactly but somehow mm-hmm. these woke men want to insist that they are women and as we pointed out earlier they weren't doing my childcare during lockdown it's about vestiture it's almost always mm. about vestiture never about earning 30 percent less Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's an identity-based position. I mean, that's what they've enshrined into law. It's it's about opting in and potentially opting out when it suits you. It's not about adopting the sex class of woman. Yeah. They're, they're busy obliterating that. It's about, um, yeah, it's about opting 
into an identity-based position that I think in many respects is a kind of, I mean, on the one hand, we've got this illiberal liberalism that's policing uh, the social, like nothing we've seen in a long time. And on the other hand, you've got this complete destruction of social categories and this opt-in and opt-out that that uh, that undermines the social. And, and it strikes me that the, uh, the shift to identity is a kind of liberal... Um, there might be a sweet spot with liberalism. I don't think I'm saying this as clearly as, um, as I could, but where um, the capacity to determine one's own self is, is fundamental and is part of what, what we've fought for and part of what rights are and individual rights within that classical liberal tradition. But it's gone now to a point where there's no acceptance of natural limits. And, and, you know, I mean, you see that in the transhuman movement as well. And, and I think the two movements coalesce. There was a good piece by a radical feminist on that not long ago, whose name escapes me now. Um, but that coalescence of the transhuman and the transgender agenda, which is about, you know, the complete uh, destruction of natural limits. And I think about that in terms of the climate crisis. And I know that's another politicised area, but I will say that that refusal to accept human limits and that reliance on a kind of medical, pharmaceutical, industrial complex, if you think about it in those meta terms, those, those larger institutional terms rather, um, there's something quite symptomatic about this. That's why I don't think it's a going back. I think it's a, it's a, it's a 2.0, if that makes sense. And I was thinking, I wrote before that the DSM is kind of drag science because it, you know, it masquerades as science, but it's not science. It's a completely sort of culturally woo-woo document. And I say that as a psychotherapist, and I know that's probably a, a heresy, but, um, you know, I mean, 100 years ago, being gay is a pathology and then it's not. And, you know, I, I think my most of the mental illnesses we have, not all, I think that there are, <clears throat> there are um, congenital disorders, but it strikes me that most of them are socially produced. Yeah, they're socially produced in a society that produces anxiety and produces alienation and produces depression. And, and I mean, that's all part of the picture here, isn't it? That, that we live in an alienated society where people are addicted to their phones, have no real anchoring in, um, in embodied social relationships or not, not nearly enough. Um, the meaning pieces collapsed. I mean, you know, Nietzsche already said God is dead over 100 years ago. What filled that spot? Well, ideology filled the spot. He said we're at risk of that. He predicted Nazism, that ideology would fill the spot of religion. And that is exactly what's happened but now it's filtered through social media and is weaponized and so I don't know I'm just really I'm worried about where this all goes. Well there's a lot of organization around various pathologies and the transgender narrative is not the worst as I found out. I was in a cafe in Islington a few days after my first piece on this was published in 2013 and mm -hmm. I was reeling because I was having to leave the country and I was actually planning to leave the country at that minute and there was a woman at the next table who was a psychoanalyst she was reading a book and anyways we started talking and I told her what had happened to me with all the death threats and she said oh well I've been on that end and I said you you've worked in this field and she says no I've worked on chronic fatigue syndrome. <gasps> she had a story to tell me. Anyways, 
skip to years later, I wrote about chronic fatigue syndrome and my editors at Counterpunch within an hour pulled my piece. They didn't even have the courtesy to write me because what's the politics of chronic fatigue syndrome? <laughs> well, <laughs> I interviewed Simon Wesley, who's the head of the Royal College of Psychiatry, who is to this day, he has to have his mail x-rayed. There is a lot of people who do not like the idea that get therapy or CBT therapy might help their chronic fatigue syndrome. And I'm even oh, afraid to yeah, talk okay, to you yeah. about this. You know, I come from New York where if you don't have a psychoanalyst, you're weird. That is <laughs> the same in the UK. I was dating someone at one point who had a, a personal issue and I suggested to her that maybe she go into therapy. And her response was, I'm not crazy. And I thought, well, we're not in New York anymore because in New York, <laughs> people brag about their therapists at parties. You literally meet someone at a party, you know how much they pay in rent and if they are in therapy and with whom. And I'm exaggerating a little bit, but there is a yeah, I'm thinking Woody Allen. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, he has tapped into something there. I was really shocked about the response to this. And this is the thing, we're at a point where I'm going to have to like Morse code you what I want to say. And this isn't healthy. I know what you want to say. I, 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 I'm aware of what you're trying to say. Because I've been, as a therapist, I'm worried about this too. I mean, we've had the conversion therapy bill passed this year. Oh, which yeah. stipulates, you know, how really the, the only treatment that is allowed now is affirmation. And I might even ask you to cut this out of the podcast, yeah? So, yeah, yeah. Uh, and the the net effect of that is, um, well, you can't practice psychoanalytically because psychoanalysis is a question, isn't it? It's like, it's a discipline based on a question. Um, and, and questioning gender is sort of in some ways at the heart, but questioning any symptom, getting to explore the meaning of symptoms and words and experiences and dreams and slips of the tongue. You can't, you can't actually practice. I mean, no one's really talking about that. A few people are, but you can't practice psychoanalytic psychotherapy anymore. Really, not really, because there's a top-down statement which weaponizes a kind of discrimination that was appalling. Yeah, it was appalling to convert gay and lesbian people. I think that was abuse. Um, but asking a question or acknowledging um, that there's a kind of social phenomenon at play here as well. I mean, especially with that shift from men to women, there were almost no women who were transgender and now we have this jump in 4,000% or something. I, I'm not sure the figure, but it's huge, isn't it, in, in that sort of 12 to 14 age group. And so we know we're in the presence of a social phenomenon, whether you use the word social contagion or not, we know we're in the presence of something here. But what I was going to say about your point there that you felt was too difficult to articulate um, is that, you know, in a sense, we're in this oppression Olympics, aren't we? Let's just name it, you know, and, and having a, a, an oppressed identity. I mean, it's one of the reasons, I think it's one of the attractions to trans for men, not so much for women, uh, natal women, I mean, young girls, that's a different set of issues. I think that's a kind of, that's, and that's what I was going to say before, actually, I feel like I'm trying to say four things at once here, but um, we need to sort of drill down into the differences because there's very different trans identities, I think, in operation at the moment that speak to different kind of cultural problematics and different uh, 
different cultural issues and, and social issues. So the young girls seems to be about self-esteem, about isolation, about, um, and I'm sure there's a very small uh, percentage that are trans, but all I'm saying is there's a, there's, you know, I mean, that, that work that came out around social contagion, I think, has really named something and, and mapped a phenomenon that we see. And this is happening on social media and the rewards for coming out as trans. So, and I think with men, it's one of the ways to opt out of privilege because privilege now, I mean, we live in this upside down world, don't we? Where privilege now is, is something that can, you know, lead to a lowering of social status. But what we're actually doing is playing, I think Gregory Bateson is great here with the, the sort of the schizophrenic mother. He's, I mean, it's quite, it's quite sexist, but what he talked about, the double meanings. So saying one thing but meaning another, producing a kind of schizophrenic response in the child because there was always a double bind. There's always a saying one thing but meaning another. And so the child gets caught in this kind of psychological torture. And I think that's actually what's happening at a grand scale here so we're saying one thing we're saying that this person is oppressed or that this person is a woman but we know that there's actually another thing going on like you say most of the militant trans activists are themselves quite like white middle class and and the activists across the board let's say those um, identity politics activists like the ones who attacked me are in tenure track positions they're um you know they're, they're privileged but they proclaim to speak as if they were not or for those who are not uh and and that has become a kind of weaponized tool for gaining status but it's a lie it's premised on a lie because very few of them actually are oppressed like we're talking about who's who's challenging the lockdowns and who's suffering well not the people who are all pro it's the people who are on the streets getting shot with rubber bullets the tradies the small business people well it's the same here i mean one of the reasons I can speak truth to power because a number of friends said, oh, my God, are you worried about, you know, the consequences? I, I got derailed years ago. I, I got, you know, and I've been living as an independent academic, self-funded for a long time. So my position at the University of Melbourne is an honorary position, not a paid position. So I, I'm not held back from speaking truth to power or I was never co-opted into that system because I became a single mum quite young and, and that meant I couldn't just, you know, mosey on into a career and, and have that, you know, that, that position that a lot of them actually have. When you look at who is making these arguments, they are almost always incredibly privileged middle-class white people. And, and so the... the, the the claim of oppression is a false claim and it's often said to the very people who have themselves been cast out by the system or undermined by it. For all the talk of me being privileged, I haven't had those positions. Despite having multiple books and multiple articles, you know, and so I think, I think that's interesting uh, that, that they claim to be oppressed when actually it's, it's usually the opposite. There's a whole industry now in claiming to be oppressed and the burden of proof. Well, you don't need anything except to say that you are oppressed or that you identify as X group. And this raises greater questions than about, well, what we are doing within our society, those of us on the left that actually believe that there is a need to address historical materialism. Jacobin wrote a piece trying to derail my piece, calling me a turf, calling counterpunch bigoted. And this is the leftist publication that people claim is worth its weight in gold. 
no one has held the editors at Jacobin to account for this slurring of, of a woman who wrote a piece about, a very reasonable piece, I might add, looking at both sides of this debate early on. Now, we're not seeing many people come up and have a change of heart. You, what you described earlier with colleagues and people whispering in back doors saying, oh, but I have seen that too. People are not willing to actually be wrong. And I have to wonder if this is about hubris plus the economic incentives that are tied in. I interviewed someone yesterday. She's got a great YouTube channel. You're kidding, right? And she said the reason why she can do what she does is because if things go really badly for her, she has a partner who can support her. And she is also self-employed. So, and the same thing with me, even though I struggle economically at times and I do miss the university paycheck of years past, the reality is that I can't be deplatformed very easily. Yeah, well, that's exactly my situation. And I miss the paycheck of times gone past too. But but I, I wouldn't trade it for the freedom that is lost because anyone in that system now, and it's something that um, is really not being written about, but my colleague, Andrew Glover, who, who did the petition, uh, is doing some interesting writing about this. In fact, he has a piece coming out in The Australian. And we've talked about it a lot. There's this... Um, there's this self-censorship that happens in the institution and we're not talking about that. We're talking about the overt cancellations, but we're not talking about the extent to which everyone on the inside is self-censoring. Yeah, so, of course, there's a proportion of people who agree with this genuinely, but there's a, a large proportion of people who do not, who won't say so. That, we see that with the lockdowns too, of course, but around the trans issue there's a disingenuousness, but there's also a very real fear because they will lose jobs and they are trying to pay mortgages and raise families. And, and so there's, there's now, uh, I think there's just this kind of consensus unreality that if you don't agree with it, you don't have a job anymore. So the few people on the outside, and this is what I was saying about the control group, you know, not being on social media, taking Lania's point quite seriously. And, and Shoshana Zuboff, of course, has written, um, written the, the, the term, the term of you know surveillance capitalism. I read that and got through it, and it was just it was exhausting. But it was it's just a brilliant book. Um, in realizing that oh, it's brilliant, it's brilliant that you know that if the product is free, you are the product, and um, this this nudging that's going on at this collective level, because that's of course that is if you know that's I mean that's the marks of the twenty first century. Her book, I think, I think it's of that magnitude in that she's analysed. Um, the entire structure that we're in and and the structure that we're in is nudging us toward madness slowly but surely um, because of this limbic hijacking, because of this, um, the fact that, as Lania also talks about, um, it's the... It, it, it's it's the angry response that generates more engagement and so that's the one that we're primed to have and that's what the culture wars do and that's what polarisation does. So they're quite different from the 90s culture wars. I think it's, it's much uglier now uh, and it's on a scale that's unprecedented and I think that's, that's changing everything. It really, really is. Taibi also taps into this in his Hate Inc. book because one thing, and I came into journalism almost accidentally. I was doing work in hating on child trafficking. Long story short, I started writing and then it rolled into this, but I never questioned until quite recently what mm -hmm. journalism was. Journalism started in capitalism. It started with merchants wanting to put the word out about 
their business being the best, buy from me type of thing. And it was all about propping up individual powerful narratives of wealthy people, the wealthy class. Now, we have advertising that goes on behind the doors that makes CNN free for us. We click on CNN, but has anyone asked why we're seeing daily pieces on Elon Musk? Literally. I had to read a piece the other day about how Elon Musk made a Twitter vote for people to decide if he were to sell 10% of his stocks to pay his taxes. This is where we are. The news is now this kind of masturbatory cycle of having the uber wealthy create wealth from our private information that everyone's cycling through, including feminists arguing over gender identity. And then at the end of the day, we're privy to taking a survey of Elon Musk asking if he should pay a very discounted rate on his billions in taxes. Oh yeah, it's a complete bastardization of news. It's not news, it's just salacious crap. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that, that's what it is. You, you can't get the news anymore. I mean, what is the news? It's it's beyond curated. It's a circus. I mean, I I find what I have to do now is just sort of find people that are um, interesting and erudite analysts like a Taibi or like um, a Heather Haying and Brett Weinstein. I listen to their podcast or like your you know long form. Um, pieces and and podcasts it seems to me is where you're going to get the kind of critical analysis you used to get in the New York Times or the Age or you know the Guardian you're not getting that now and you're getting a recycling of opinion um but yeah this the broader as I was saying with Shoshana Zuboff's work the, the insight there is we're in this media ecology which we don't see the advertisement we used to see the advertisement it was stationary it was on a billboard or it was in the newspaper but now it's operating by stealth selling our our interactions with others and we're not just looking at the billboard the billboard's looking back at us and I think that's the critical shift yeah we're being looked at and and then what we're clicking on and you know that's all being collated and then we're nudged you know I was reading something about you know even the the algorithm now knows you know women's menstrual cycles it knows when couples are going to break up before they do because they've texted to their friends and so on so at the moment of the breakup the very thing you've looked at every time you're a little bit vulnerable let's say a particular kind of chocolate or a particular kind of wine or something that ad will then be sent to you at the moment of the breakup or at the pre-menstrual moment I mean this is just phenomenal the level of detail they have on the individual um, this digital twinning so you know we've got this this digital not not the avatar up front this is the shadow text in the back that then is is um utilized to nudge us in different directions including political directions and that's why i feel you know ethically we're ethically incumbent to step out of this because it's madness like a lot of people say oh i can just use it you know and not be affected by it i agree with lania no, no you actually can't you actually can't use it and not be affected by it. That's not to say I'm not a Puritan about it. Use it. I use it a little bit, but I don't think you can use it and not be affected by it until they change the business model. They have to change the business model. We can't be the raw material. And if we are, you cannot use it by definition without being impacted by it. Like you can't work for a, uh, an organisation or you can't work for a, a capitalist, you know, if we go Marxist, without being a wage slave. You know, you can't negotiate. Or, or back to Carol Pateman, you know, you can't, you can't be a wife and still have autonomy, even if it feels like it. You know, that, that's, that's that radical structural analysis. And there's still a place for it. In fact, it's, it's imperative now to understand the digital media scape we're in. 
politicians back in the UK in 2004 didn't think about the contradictions that would emerge. Women were not invited to the table. And now it's happening with Biden because Trump derangement syndrome, it's a thing. They will just say yes to whatever Trump said no to. That's it. That's emerging in the state of Victoria too. There's anyone who opposes Dan Andrews, who's who's the draconian premier, who's who's had these endless lockdowns and he's trying to push through a bill at the moment that gives him extraordinary power. It's not even democratic that he can at any point snap that, not even with consulting the health uh, professionals. And... Um, and, and the left now is like anything Dan does is great and the right is like anything Dan does is terrible. And this is also what Lania said would happen to politics. So that Trump derangement syndrome means people aren't thinking anymore. We see this in the trans issue. I was very worried when Twitter emerged. I thought what kind of productive discussions can happen in 140 characters? I was worried about it. Not that I think mm. that writing War and Peace is the answer, but I'm quite aware that the, no, what's happened is just since Twitter's invented, the word count that a lot of editors, you know this as well, I guess, that editors were asking for around 2000 is quite different than the word count they're asking today. People's attention span. Yeah, it's like 800 words. I can't even write like that as an academic. I really struggle. I don't know how you did the transition. I get I get editorial help. And by the way, you asked me about the title. That wasn't my title. I, I either had no title or something, you know, that has a, a colon in it and, you know, like academic yeah, yeah. titles. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, no, that was, that was the editor's scenario. And that was, I think that was about flagging J.K. Rowling because that's what creates clickbait. I, I didn't have that title. I had something about, you know, civil disagreement, bloody blah, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to step back to the idea of when I said it was very medieval, this is what I was thinking. Obviously, I'm intellectually aware that history is not this teleological, everything gets better, better, better. We know that history does not do that. Uh, women's rights have come and gone, and it depends on the countries, because mm. in the Middle Ages in Europe, you damn well wanted to be a woman in the Muslim cultures, because they had, they were living the life compared to women in the mi Middle Ages in, in France, let's say. Mm. And that said, I wonder if there, well, some people maintain that there's a sociopolitical malignant narcissism afoot around this issue encouraged by the left. We talked about language, we talked about economics, but what about the idea that people are now making videos saying, he just misgendered me and they put a video up on TikTok to show that they've been victimized and we all know that's not what victimization is, but whatever. And then your interaction with the Australian Sociological Association it seems to be that there's a mass encounter session afoot where everyone is feeding off of everyone else's egos. And it's very uh, navel gazing to me and I can't stand it. It drives me nuts. I think I have an allergy to this kind of thought about the self because I am a personal subject, but I dislike intrinsically the kind of oversharing that happens online. So in many countries, you could, be, you could be accused of transphobia should you refer to gender. And as you mentioned, therapists can face prison. There's been a pushback also in the UK against this. But is there an argument to be made that there's a malignant form of narcissism afoot within Anglophone cultures especially? 
Uh, yeah, I think there is. I, I really do. I mean, I don't, I don't feel in, like I'm an expert in the field of narcissism by any stretch, but I think what I would say is I'd go one step further and say that social media, in particular Facebook, but all social media mandates narcissism. So I believe to be on the platform, one is structurally nudged to be a narcissist. You have your own front page. Think about that. I mean, that's phenomenal in terms of foregrounding your immediate subjective experience and turning it into a front page, <laughs> like newspaper. Look at my life. I mean, to me, the most gratuitous sort of and, and tragic comic tragedy comedy is, is this new selfie death stuff where people are trying to get such extraordinary shots of themselves in in unusual or risky or beautiful places they've they've got to be singular and excessive in some way which is what narcissism is yeah and then they're falling off cliffs it you know at Niagara Falls or it happened uh, at the Grampians here that's a sort of spectacular mountain range and it's just it's tragic but this I think it's mandated narcissism so again I go kind of quite sociological with that in, in a structural sense that that the front page that is our own lives now requires us to think like that. I was listening to an Eric Weinstein podcast a while back and he said, and it really struck me as quite insightful, he said, you know, this is increasing discomfort with social media and what it does to people. And, and a friend of his or someone had said, you know, you need to reconnect with your old friends. And he said, but my old friends aren't my old friends anymore. People from the 80s who are in social media are now digital versions of themselves. So whatever the person you knew then in the 90s or the early noughties, they're not the same because we are transformed by this medium, which I think is a fundamental sociological insight. I mean, that's what Durkheim says. Society is sui generis. It's, it comes first. And so I, I'm, I'm a mix of a Durkheim and a, and a Weber because I do think um, agency and, and structure have a recursive relationship. So there are individuals who, who who do stand apart like a Martin Luther King or a Mary Wollstonecraft and transform the culture but most do not but that doesn't change the fact that even those exceptional individuals are in these structures and have to fight against them so my sense is now that narcissism is the default condition rather than some kind of mendacious anomaly it is the default condition we are required to be narcissists now. We are killing ourselves to be narcissists, falling off bridges. And, and I think um, that to me is the, the, the selfie and the tragic comedic deaths is the paradigmatic example of malignant narcissism. Uh, and, and I think, yeah, the fact that that is weaponised in the culture wars also adds another dimension here. And, again, I mean, it's not, it's not a good thing to say, but we see this. There's a term for it, you may know it, where people's profiles, a lot of the woke people say, quote, unquote, we are doing this. We, um, we get the exposure by being cancelled. What's that term? There's a term for that now. Um, where, you know, like when um, when one of us loses a position or is cancelled or is um, derailed in some way or attacked by a group of trans activists or identity uh, identitarians, we gain profile through getting articles and getting support and getting petitions. And that's that whole piece. And I think it's, I think it's true. And so there can be a kind of shadow there uh, with even people. And this is my point about being the control group, about being outside of this, because... All of us are pandered to in this system. That's the, that's the Zuboff point again, that we are rewarded for our rancorous engagement. 
not for our more thoughtful pieces, you know. And that's like the, the headline. If I had had my long-winded, boring, clunky academic headline, how many clicks would it have got? You know, it would have been oblivious. But an apology to J.K. Rowling, you know, that's going to that's gonna go around. There's also been a build-up of media to push back against it, some of which worries me. I don't want to go back to the 1990s. I don't want more ghettoized gay and lesbian rags, to be honest. I worry now that people are making the pushback to this. It's going to become its own form of wookery. And I don't want to have to now be part of the gay army that believes in another replacement orthodoxy. Exactly. I also worry that we're getting to a point that people are no longer able to engage. You talk about it in your piece on Rawling, where you discuss the balkanization of culture into silos mm -hmm. of unreason, you say. Well, mm -hmm. the fact is that if we say something that the woke crowd doesn't like, we will be accused of being right-wing Christians, racist, KKK, Nazis, you name it. I know, it's just, it's diabolical, isn't it? The names that we're called, I mean, you know that women don't have penises. Who would have thought we jumped from the 1980s of fighting for gay rights with gay men dropping off like flies yeah, to yeah, two mean. generations later, now we're having to argue that lesbians don't have dicks. It's like, who wrote the joke? Yeah, yeah, it's madness. And that's why one of the strategic responses I have, but that I believe we should all have, is not to engage in the terms of the debate. Because the minute you're arguing women don't have penises, you're caught. You're caught in the spider's web because that's right. that is a mad proposition. So I think better to step out and make a productive case uh, in, in some ways for whatever it is, the category of woman or the rather than be on the back foot and be defined. And it could be, you know, it could be my psychoanalytic orientation there, but the minute I'm in a double bind, I step out to a third position, never accept the terms of the double bind. And then it feeds back into the narcissism because the social media is built up and you see this even with the feminists, enough about me, let's talk about what you think about me. And it's, it's back to that, that was a one-liner from American comedian Joan Rivers, but oh, social media really has become that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. <laughs> Your book, Modern Motherhood and Women's Dual Identities, Rewriting the Sexual Contract, focuses on British feminist Carol Pateman's work. Now, I read Carol Pateman as a graduate student. Her analysis of the modernization of patriarchy she takes into account two of the most overlooked paradoxes of modern feminism. One being the conterminous enabling and disabling consequences for women that social contracts are based upon the ideas of liberty that are inherently allegedly oriented to favor the sex right of men. She looks at this because the sex right of men implicates the subordination of women, something that is very much within what we've just discussed. It's all about men's rights. And the question is never, how dare men say that women are a feeling? It's how dare you misgender me? Their mm. feelings are immediately prefaced. We don't exist. We are their mirror. And then the other side of Pateman's work, well, in other words, her work looks at the social contract existing as a progression to liberty, but only the liberty, of course, of the front noodlers, not the <laughs> and largely because men's freedom is dependent upon the inhibition 
of the autonomy of women. Can you discuss your book in light of not only what we've been discussing, but perhaps looking forward towards what is next? You mentioned transhumanism, but there's a lot of questions about why we're seeing Cancer Research UK telling women in a country with very high immigration of non-native English speakers, if you have a cervix to get it checked, or people with cervixes, that was going on in 2018. Why is it we're just not seeing men being called prostate havers? Because I think Pateman's work is very crucial to understanding this. Okay, there's a lot in what you just said. So I'm going to unpack it first up by saying Pateman doesn't say that the paradox of the sexual contract is that it enables and disables women. That's what I say in my book. So Pateman's view is that it, sub it subjects women. So she has a trenchant critique of liberalism. She doesn't have the redeeming piece. So my wrestling with Pateman, as you wrestle with whoever your primary theorist or group of theorists are in your PhD, and I took a long time to do my PhD over a decade, so I read and reread and read and reread Pateman in that way that we still did once upon a time. Um, and so that piece, I guess, was my wrestling with her theory. Pateman's view is that the liberal social contract of Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau and so on is um, a social contract of men. Men are the contracting agents. And as you said just then, uh, they do so on the basis of women's subordination. And she has quite a psychoanalytic theory of that too. So while she's a political theorist, uh, she also employs Freud's kind of totem and taboo notion that the brothers kill the father symbolically, so the Oedipal myth, to democratise the sexual power among themselves. So instead of the kind of alpha male with a harem, so to speak, um, we move to this uh, sexual equality of men. So she says smuggled into liberty, uh, equality, fraternity, and she says the fraternity piece gets lost in the Anglo world, but it's central. It is a brotherhood. We shift from classical patriarchy, which is of the father and the alpha father, the king, the man who gets to monopolise property and, and women as property, to the democratisation of that right among all men, and that part of that right is sex right. And so that's Pateman's argument that she enumerates in the or elucidates in the sexual contract. And what I did with that in my thesis was agree and disagree. So I agree with her, but, but I feel that liberalism has nonetheless um, granted women more rights and freedoms than any other cultural or political formation, liberal modernity. And so while I agreed with her critique, I felt we needed at least a thin edge of a wedge to say, no, hang on a minute, women are enabled and disabled by this system. And so that's what I then analysed, how that, that, that simultaneous move is constitutive of liberal modernity. And what I, what I specifically said was, Pateman's analysis of the individual as um, inherently masculine and premised upon a feminine other, a subjected other, I argued that women inhabited the category of the individual, but I agreed with Pateman that it was a masculine category. And so what you get then are two tiers of women or two tiers of um, female citizens, and that is individuals and mothers. So that's where my motherhood piece comes in because women can be individuals until they become mothers. Isn't that the great lesson? It's the whole, oh, my God, no one ever told me it was like this. I'd have no autonomy. I'd have no... Women in pre-modern cultures didn't experience motherhood like that because they hadn't imbibed an ethos of individualism first. Does that make sense? 
And so as we inhabited the legal and political category of the individual, which is bequeathed to us through liberalism, we, by definition, had a conflict with our own female selves if we transitioned to motherhood or any kind of caregiving for the other because the liberal individual is autonomous and without constraints. And that's both a political, politico-legal fiction as well as, in some senses, an imperative. So it's the minute, like we talk about lockdown. When you've got children under lockdown, lockdown was for some people a holiday and for other people a nightmare. And I think, and of course, it, it ranged in between, but we really showed up the differences in sexual uh, subjectivity and in, uh, by that I mean, you know, sex difference and, and class, didn't it? And so I saw people who weren't parents were relieved of the commute, really enjoyed being at home and doing a bit of yoga, you know, and I saw parents, This obviously that's the middle class, although it was a, it was a, a mix, but whereas for mothers, I mean, it was just so difficult because they suddenly had to keep working because, you know, we've all gone into the workforce now and be homeschooling and that wasn't shared. Surprise, surprise, that wasn't shared in heterosexual relationships. That wasn't shared with men, not, not in the way that... It's the same as we say, you know, men and women are equal now. Oh, except, except some are more equal than others. Women are doing the majority of the domestic work and the childcare, the kin-keeping, the emotion work that isn't even tracked properly that women do. Well, just like the second home issue in Italy, Pornhub exactly. was released as being free in Italy. So men were working. Oh, I saw that. So appalling. They were working their penises. I mean, it was so disgusting. I'm sorry, but I am against capital punishment. But I sort of think that men who chose to wank off instead of helping their partners, I think there's a special place in hell for them. Oh, it's appalling. I'll tell you a funny anecdote that ties into that. A friend of mine's in a, a gender development role. She's a consultant and they were in a Zoom meeting and um, it went to one of the men. Because, of course, men are in these roles now, yeah, because that's what degendering does. It means that roles that used to have, whether it's the women's officer and not, not only trans-identifying men or trans men are in those roles, but men, men, regular so-called cisgender men are in some of those roles now, you know. And so the... The screen flips to him and he's got, you know, this ass on the screen, a bikini model, you know, some 25-year-old in a bikini, but it was it was something soft porn-ish. Um, you know, he's some sort of gender specialist. The embarrassment was extreme and then the women in the group said, you know, a couple of them said, we're not comfortable with this and he had a sort of mea culpa, he apologised. But, I mean, you know, exactly. And, and no doubt his wife was in the other room while he was being a gender specialist getting paid 100K and, oh, oops, accidentally what pops up on the screen is a woman in a bikini. Anyway, I did find that funny, but, but, it, um, but funny not funny, you know. It, it's funny and it's not funny. And I think that this piece around women are two citizens. So what I was doing with Pateman was saying, yes, she's absolutely right about that devastating critique of the liberal individual. But women have hoisted themselves out of really subjective, you know, I mean, medieval subjection is quite different to modern subjection. Out of that subjection, basically they've clawed their way out through this category of the individual, which is constitutively male. So we now, what I'm saying is, in, in the 21st century, as women in the West have clawed themselves out of uh, traditional subjection through this category of the individual, now find themselves with dual roles and dual selves. And those dual roles and dual selves are in conflict. It's not just that they exist. Oh, it's great. You know, I'm a mum and I happen to also be, you know, a psychotherapist. It's that when I'm a psychotherapist, I can't be a mum, so my kids have to be somewhere. And, and where is that and who is that? And, and that's my problem to sort out. 
So, you know, that's that's what I'm saying, that there's this kind of we've arrived in this historical moment as having two identities or, or two structural positions and one of them is historically male, made by and for men, and that's the category of the individual. And let me just say, to sort of make it more complex, I wouldn't give up that category for anything. I think that category, even though it's constitutively male, and that's what I argued against Pateman in some senses. I love Pateman, but that was my my truck with her in my thesis, is that relinquish that and, and what are we left with? I'd, I'd rather that than medieval subjection, you know, or even 19th century subjection. The idea that we have democratic processes and then when it suits us, we can test them with various names such as transphobe or you want to kill granny. This seems to be the go-to where emotion is driving arguments and this is very against enlightenment. We are not we are not deferring to reason anymore, not only because people don't want to be wrong. I wonder if there's a psychological element that people are unable to be wrong, that we are living not just in this kind of mass narcissism, but we're living in an era where people refuse to admit being wrong because to admit that they they view that as a weakness, where those of us who are more intellectually rigorous recognize that being wrong is just part of the dialectic. It's important because otherwise you're no longer, I mean, I'm a social theorist, not a scientist or even a social scientist, but to use the empiricist language, you can't even test hypotheses that way. And that's why this is so scary. And that's why this shift towards um, one one position only annexed to a kind of moral high ground uh, is is de- is destruction of the culture at its deepest level because this culture is premised upon I guess uh, scientific skepticism and the category of the individual which includes within that uh, freedom of speech freedom of expression the freedom to be wrong the freedom to live outside the social norms. And and as that gets closed up under the spurious uh, guise of uh, progressivism, uh, we're actually living in a sort of curiously progressive totalitarianism, aren't we? At at the deepest levels, like at the level of ideation and and, and the the cultural generation of ideas uh, through to the expression of lifestyle. I think it's from from science, from the academy through to how we're able to live and even talk to each other now. Like people are scared to talk to each other uh, about some of these hot button issues, um, and and I think I think it's deeply destructive. And that's where you know before you were talking about you know not having a, a teleological understanding, this notion of just things getting better all the time. Well, clearly this is an example of things getting worse. We are in the presence of some kind of collective delusion here, um, and and that's that's really worrying. It's really worrying. You're not allowed to be wrong now uh, and you're not allowed to be. So I don't just think it's that people are uh, disingenuous. I think it's that they're scared to be wrong. You and I are scared. We've referenced it twice in the conversation that, oh, I don't know if I should talk about that or maybe we should cut that out. Or I don't believe we would have said that. I don't believe we would have said that in, in the West 20 years ago, not within, not within a kind of general left critical feminist sort of subject position the, the the subject positions you and I have would not have been beyond the pale and and suddenly on a whole lot of fronts they are now 
Um, and while there's a kind of, for some time now, the witch burning has been digital, that is moving to legal. We're watching that happen now. And I find it scary. I find it disturbing. Thank you.